Hey, Pioneers, welcome to episode number 302 of the Pioneering Today podcast. Today's episode is all about helping you set planting priorities and get a clear planting plan of veggies and herbs that you want to be growing in your garden. Today's episode is one of the newer features that we have been doing on the podcast that we started this year. And that is the consult type episodes where members of the Pioneering Today Academy, which is my membership, get the opportunity to come onto the podcast and ask me questions in a one-on-one consult and you get the benefit of also listening in. Based upon your guys' feedback, you really, really enjoy these episodes and I plan on coming out with more of them after the summer. Now, this episode was recorded a few weeks back, but it is still very applicable as many of us are still planning our garden, getting some cool weather crops in, depending upon where you live. Some of us are able to get in those warm weather crops at the time of this recording of this intro part. I'm not quite able to put all of my warm weather crops up. I've got a few more weeks, but this will serve you well for both this year and the coming years. And even as you look ahead to your fall gardening, which I know if you're listening to this at the time that it releases, which is going to be the very end of April, you're like, oh my goodness, thinking about fall gardening already. But the tips that I share within this consult episode will serve you well, no matter where you're at in your garden planning. And I hope that many of you are growing more than just a summer garden, that you are doing a fall garden. And that planting time, which we can link to uh, some of the episodes where we talk a little bit more about that and some YouTube videos that I have on that because the planning for your fall garden and the implementation really begins for a lot of people in the middle of summer or the end of summer, depending upon your gardening climate. So I'm really excited to share this consult that I did with Christine with you today And if you are interested in becoming a member of the Pioneering Today Academy, we originally, I wasn't sure if we were going to open up for new members and general enrollment until the fall, but I decided that we are going to do a summer enrollment. So you can go to melissaknorris.com forward slash PTA for Pioneering Today Academy. And you can put your name and email in there to get on the wait list. And then I will notify you as soon as we open up for enrollment. And that date, so you can mark your calendars, but also get on the notify list. So you actually get the email with the link is going to be June 9th. June 9th is when we will be opening again for general enrollment to the Academy. Right now, you're not able to get in there. So I thought that it was great that I shared this episode with you now so that you can still use it for your garden planning and even into the summer garden planning, but also to let you know when that upcoming date is, because many of you have been sending me messages and emailing me and saying, I want to get into the academy. When are you opening again? And so we decided that we would do a summer enrollment and that date has just been set for June 9th. As I'm going through this consult and we talk about anything, you'll be able to, as always, hit the blog post, which is at melissaknorris.com forward slash 302, because this is episode number 302, to find links to any of the things that I am talking about and or recommending. So without further ado, let's get straight into this week's consult. Christine, welcome to the Pioneering Today podcast. I'm really excited for our session today. Thank you for having me on. I am so excited about this. I've been looking forward to it and taking furious notes of questions to ask. So, yes. Oh, I love it. You have a student's heart. I love that. I've got notes and I'm prepared. That is very fun. So for everybody who has not met you or is not in the academy and, and so doesn't know you via the community there, Give us just a little bit of background on where you're homesteading and your kind of like your level, and then we'll jump right into your questions. Sounds good. My name is Christine Stalsenberg, and we have a 30-acre parcel in northern Michigan, 
And we just started to expand it into um, a self-sufficient or working towards a self-sufficient homestead last year, um, 2020, when we all had so much time on our hands and you know, it just kind of made us relook priorities and where's our food coming from and what if our supply was shut off, what were we gonna do? So I don't even remember how God was gracious enough to bring your podcasts and your blogs across my path, but he did. And I am eternally grateful for that because without you and your information and the Academy, I would be totally lost with everything. It has been a true godsend in my life. So I wanted to say that first and foremost. Oh, you're going to make me get teary eyed. <laughs> well, thank you. I am I'm really glad that I'm able to help you. So thank you. So we are very beginners. I always had like a little backyard garden and some years it would do good and some years it wouldn't. And was like, ah, I don't know what the deal was. And now I know how much I didn't know. <laughs> yes that is definitely i feel like the further we get down any path and anything you're like oh yeah that makes sense but we don't know what we don't know at the time right so yes we're very beginners last year we started canning we bought a lot of what we canned from a local amish farmer we were very comfortable with how it was grown and and where everything was coming from and This year, we wanted to get to the point where we were growing everything for canning ourselves. Uh, For the most part, there's obvious some things we can't grow in our climate up here in northern Michigan. But that's kind of where we want to be in the path I want to go down is how best to get everything planned out for where we want to be and to be able to do that successfully in our very short growing season we have here. Okay. Well, I love that this is a topic that's near and dear to my heart. And I'm really glad that you, even last year, like you said, we're we're just jumping in. I think last year, I think no matter what level you were as a homesteader or being self-sufficient or that was your goal, I think last year, everybody kind of had their eyes open a bit and was really clearly able to see where they did have holes, you know, in, in their preparedness or just all of that kind of stuff or their reliance still on other sources. And everybody was like, okay, you know, I'm going to plug these holes and kind of up my game. And so I'm really happy to hear that even though you're like, we didn't have all the produce that we wanted in our garden, we went and got it from someone else. And we still went about preserving it and learning. Like you didn't let that stand in your way. So I'm really happy to hear that you guys have been doing a lot then if you just started last year. So that's very impressive. Kudos to you. So with your planting priorities, where so do you feel from last year where did you have anything in the garden or what crops did you have in the garden that you were like okay we did have enough of this to preserve or for close to a year um or was there really not anything that you felt that you really had enough of that you were preserving to that level yeah there really wasn't anything um my my gardening last year was very haphazard. It was like, oh, let's plant a little bit of this here and a little bit of this there. And it it just, it wasn't really well planned out because that wasn't, kind of wasn't where we initially wanted to be. It was just like, we need to get food in the ground. It was, it was very chaotic as okay. everything was, was going on and, and starting. And it was kind of late in the season because it was like April-ish when the light bulb finally went off of, oh, we need to maybe do some things differently. So we were, we were a little behind the eight ball on, on getting a lot of things in the garden. And then I was inappropriately growing things because I didn't know what I needed to do and how I needed to fix things. And I had more mold and mildew and, and, spoiled crops than I could shake a stick at. So (laughs) it was was very discouraging. So I spent all winter with my nose in the academy. And I feel like I'm in a very better place now with my education background on on at least where to go to get those things, because I will never, ever in my lifetime remember all of the wonderful (laughs) things that you teach us. But to have that resource is invaluable. Okay, so this is actually really well, though, because I wanted to know if we had, you know, where our starting point was. And so it's totally fine if you're like, no, nothing was really what I would want to replicate from last year. So we're kind of starting from scratch. So that's good. So the the first thing with the, the planting priorities is 
when is your last average frost date in the spring? May 29th. Okay, good. So you have a long window that we're recording this the end of March, actually. So you have quite a bit of time uh, before your warm weather crops would go out and even counting backwards for your cool weather crops. So this is actually really good. You have a, a further, a shorter growing season. Yes. But um, at this point in time, this gives us a, enough window uh, to really get everything done that we need to. And we haven't really missed very many planting dates. Really, the only thing would have been if you were starting onions from seed, but you can definitely get onion sets. And so you haven't even really missed that. So this is this is good news. So first with the planting priorities is really deciding which crops that, like you said, obviously grow in your area. So if you're a shorter growing season and depending on how hot your summers get and you're in a northern Michigan climate, you probably aren't going to be able to successfully really grow things like okra and sweet potatoes. Uh, you have a very similar climate, I think, to me in that respect. So that kind of takes those right away. We can just eliminate that. But you should be able to grow pretty much everything else, both cool weather crops and warm weather crops, especially if we stagger and get some cool weather crops in earlier before that last average frost date. And then, of course, the warmer ones there. But because you have that shorter growing season, seed starting for things like especially your tomatoes and peppers are probably going to be something that you're going to have to, to do. So have you done any seed starting of the tomatoes and peppers, or are you planning on purchasing those as seedlings from another grower or nursery area? I started my Amish paste tomato seeds um, a couple of weeks ago. I'm, I'm in tomato overload right now. <laughs> yes. I thinned them out and God bless them all. They all took. Yay. <laughs> So we've got um, we've got 50 Amish paste tomato plants coming up. Um, I've repotted them once. And uh, that was one of my questions that I had was to how far up that does that stem? Should that stem grow before I repot them to cover it up more with soil? Oh, that's a that's a great question. So for tomatoes, really only tomatoes. So for for someone listening and if, if you're not sure, when you're doing seed starting, tomatoes and planting are one of the few plants that if you bury the tomato stem, it will actually grow more roots from the stem. Now, if you do that with almost any other start, it won't actually grow more roots. So that's important to, to make the distinction there that we're talking specifically about tomatoes and their unique characteristics, so to speak, with that. So usually what I do is if they are getting, every time I go to repot them, um, I will bury their stem lower in the container, you know, put add it, add more dirt up around there. So I only do it when I'm repotting. And usually if it's just starting, you know, they're really outgrowing the pot that they're in. So both if I can see roots starting to come out the drain holes from the bottom um, or if they've been in there like a small pot for more than about four weeks like, like the, I, I even use red solo cups. Like sometimes I run out of, of, of enough size pot. So if they've been in a, a container, if you have a tomato plant that's about uh, four weeks, three to four weeks old, and it, you put it in approximately the size of like a red solo cup, some of those smaller containers, once they've been in there for about four weeks, so that would be about a six to eight week old tomato plant. Um, that's when I usually find if I'm not ready weather timing to start hardening them off to be able to plant them outdoors in the ground then that's when i usually need to pot up to a larger container and so of course when i put it into that larger container then i have more depth so i can add more soil around the stem and you can go with tomatoes you actually can go so for the first potting i would remove what the first leaves that aren't the true leaves so there's those little leaves that they're not like a tomato leaf, you know, is usually a little bit jagged. And you can tell by looking at the leaf, like this is a tomato leaf. But the first leaves, when they first germinate, they don't look like that. So they're not really the true leaves. So I will remove those if they haven't fallen off yet by the time I'm repotting them. I'll remove them and go right up to that first leaf level. And then as the plant continues to grow, the next time I'm either planting it outdoors or repotting up to a larger, like say a gallon size pot, for example, or half gallon um, size, then I'll do the same thing when I pot it. I'll usually just re, 
um, remove those first set of leaves only as long as it has enough green leafy vegetation on top to feed it. If it only has like four leaves, then I wouldn't remove any of those leaves yet. But if it's got a lot of leaves and it's getting really, really tall and really big, then I'll go ahead and remove those bottom leaves and then bring the soil level up right to where I removed those, that first set of leaves on the bottom. Does that make sense? It does. Thank you very much for that. Yeah, no problem. So back to the planting priorities, which I'm very happy to hear you have uh, your tomato seeds already started, um, is looking at, I look at what it is we're eating on a really consistent basis and what I want to be preserving for us to eat. And then what will grow in our climate. So for example, I said like tomatoes and okra, those just are, excuse me, sweet potatoes and okra aren't going to grow here. And to grow tomatoes and peppers, I have to seed start them or buy seedlings. Um, but we eat a lot of tomato based products from salsa to tomato sauce, to pizza sauce, to spaghetti sauce mm -hmm. um, and that. So for me, tomatoes is one of my biggest planting priority crops. And so I always make sure that I have enough tomato plants that it's going to be able that I can make all of those things and have enough for fresh eating that I want. And so I know because you're um, in the academy, you have access to the how much to plant per person for a year's worth of food charts, or it gives you an average per plant. On average, you'll get this amount of yield. Uh, for those of you who are listening into the podcast, if you haven't grabbed those charts yet, you can get them at uh, familygardenplan.com. And I'll have a link in the show notes um, it's actually a worksheet that's from my book, The Family Garden Plan. When you're in, in the academy, you get um, all of my worksheets and handouts as well and different charts. Um, but you can actually grab that um, if you're listening in for free. I have that, that worksheet and chart um, accessible for everybody. So I go through and make sure, okay, I've got enough tomatoes to meet my family of four and how much we're eating on average of these different products. And that's like one of my very first priorities. And then I just kind of go down the list of what we're eating and I can grow. So for us, I go down then to green beans. So my family, I know so many of you know this story and hear this, but my family's been seed saving and growing our own strain of heirloom Tar Heel green pole beans. And it's the only type of green bean that my children and myself like. And so I always make sure that we are growing enough green beans to one I can can, and that's our green bean eating throughout the entire year, both as a side dish and then like using the green beans when I'm making vegetable soup or stews to be able to add it into there, as well as like green bean casserole, which we tend to have just more around holiday times. Um, and of course, fresh eating for about the two months that we have that harvest window, July through August that they're growing. And then I make sure if you're seed saving, you want to make sure that you have enough planted as well for you to be able to leave some on the vine to fully mature and then seed save from, which is the case for me, especially with our green beans. Um, so I kind of just start to go down a list and I make notes like this is what we eat often and how much of in my family. And then that's when I go by that chart and I'm like, okay, this is how many I know we're going to need to put in, which of course, after you've been gardening and doing this, you'll become to know what your numbers are and you won't have to rely on the chart as much. You'll, you'll know, oh, I need, you know, 30 tomato plants or paste tomato plants, or I need, you know, 50 or, or whatever that number will be. And so each year you'll get it dialed in a little bit more and a little bit more for your growing season and what your family's actually using and production and all of that. So it does get easier. It feels like a lot of work up front, but I promise it does get easier the further you get into it um, and are doing it. But that's kind of how I walk through and I prioritize and I look at the plants too and the crops. Um, for example, we still plant lettuce, of course, and spinach, and you can freeze spinach easier than you can lettuce and still use it in you know casseroles or, or dishes and different things like that. But lettuce really doesn't have a preserving way. You could dehydrate it if you wanted to add it to a green powder, but nutritional wise, I would do something else that was a, a different green um, vegetable before I would do that with lettuce. I still plant lettuce, but it has a lower priority for me if I'm, you know, coming up short on space or time because I want to make sure that the crops that we're putting in are the crops that I also can preserve 
um, to take us through when there isn't fresh eating from the garden during those, you know, winter and early spring months usually. So I just start to go through and make up a big list and then start to weed it down. Like this, I, you know, like I said, like lettuce, we'll plant some, but it's not a huge priority for me. I definitely am making sure I have all my tomatoes in, uh, my pepper plants in, my green beans in, you know, so on and so forth. Um, and then list them in order of priority. If you can't plant them all or you don't have the space to plant them all, like these ones are the absolute most important for me. Um, and I also will look and be like, okay, well, I know locally, like you did with the tomatoes last year, for us, I'm like, okay, I know locally I can get some really good sweet corn um, and maybe I don't have garden space for it this year or I was late in planting, but I know I can get sweet corn from an outside source and I can still preserve it for us to have, but I'll get it local when it's fresh, you know, and all of that. And so sometimes I'll make a decision not to grow something based upon the fact that I can get it locally um, from a place that, like you said, I feel comfortable with their growing practices and it's a really good price. Awesome. If you have any more questions regarding that aspect, let me know. Okay. Not specifically on that. I do have a couple other questions though. Yes. Okay. Fire okay. away. Okay. Um, we decided we just this past week cleared a 110 by 50 area to expand our garden. And what we are going to put in that is going to be a 10 by 20 um, hoop house. Yeah, specifically for the tomatoes and peppers. And uh, then we're going to do some um, high tunnels for our beans and peas. Now, my question for that is with crop rotation, since we don't want to relocate those every year, is it okay to just test and amend those soils and keep those crops in the same place? Yeah, this is a great question. First, I do want to ask, um, with the high tunnel for the beans and the peas, what is the reason for planting those in, in a high tunnel or hoop house? Um, maybe I have the wrong terminology. It's um, cattle fencing, four by oh. 16 cattle fencing that we're just going to put the forefoot in and stretch it over. So make yes. it more of a trellis. You're doing a trellis. Yes. Okay. okay. There we no, go. I'm so glad. I'm glad I asked. Yes. So for, so the difference is of course, a trellis is a beautiful way to grow your beans and your peas. Highly recommend it. It will help cut down if you did have any type of fungal um, issues just because of um, it supports them so well, but it leaves a lot of area for airflow. So it's, it's fabulous, but a trellis versus a, hoop house or a high tunnel. So a high tunnel and or hoop house is an unheated greenhouse. Um, and so it's still covered with plastic, but you're not introducing any type of heat source to it. It's just going to be able to trap some of the heat just that, you know, you naturally have from the sun coming out and, and you know, in the ground being warm and it kind of traps it in that environment. And so it keeps it warmer. And so usually uh, that's what people, that's what I technically use for my tomatoes and peppers because they don't heat it. So it's technically called a high tunnel, but a lot of times the terminology is used um, with greenhouse and high tunnel kind of back and forth, but technically your greenhouse is heated. If it's not heated, then it is actually a high tunnel, even if the structure may look more like a greenhouse with like a pitched roof, et cetera, you know, not necessarily like a, a, a rounded top construction to it. So good because, um, beans and peas will be just fine, especially your peas. Peas are, are a cool weather crop and, and will handle frost where most beans will be killed by a frost. They're not as hardy as peas, but unless you live, you know, where you had to really start them earlier, had even a shorter growing season than you do, which, which you should be fine. Um, you wouldn't want to actually grow the, them in an environment like a high tunnel that was actually covered with plastic and helping to trap the heat in because beans and peas, if they get um, too hot during the summer months, then their blossoms, they don't actually set the peas and the beans. So a lot of times people will see be in the middle of summer, especially a lot warmer summer climates. And they'll be like, my beans and my peas are flowering, but they're like, I'm not getting any type of vegetable on them. What's going on. And it's just that they're too warm. And then once that warm, spell has passed or get further into the season once it starts to cool back down a little bit then they'll start to set again and actually produce the vegetable or the fruit the bean pea etc so 
that was the reason for my question, because I didn't want you to grow your beans and peas in a high tunnel that would raise the temperature and possibly make you not get a harvest. So I'm glad okay. I'm glad that we that we got that. So yay. Okay. So back to your question, however, though, on the crop rotation, which is a great one. So for me personally, if I am growing, which I do, my tomatoes and peppers in a high tunnel and or greenhouse or unheated greenhouse, it really would be the same for any type of structure like that. As long as there has not been any disease present in that soil or on the tomatoes as they were growing, like I, I knew that there wasn't any blight, like there was no type of fungal or bacterial disease that was presenting itself on the plants, then I do grow my tomatoes and my peppers back inside that same high tunnel, aka unheated greenhouse and it is soil in the ground, so I don't have raised beds or containers in mm -hmm. there. I'm planting them directly in the ground, but there's no overhead watering done. So I don't set a sprinkler inside there. I use a drip hose. And of course the rain falling from the sky is not hitting them because they're completely covered by plastic, which is eliminating, for me, has eliminated all blight and fungal disease issues with my tomatoes and my peppers. So I just want to, I want to make really clear that distinction for anybody listening. I would never do this if it was just an in-ground open to the air type environment with tomato and pepper plants because of the high likelihood of them getting blight and then it's in the soil and it would infect them if I use the same spot again. So I just amend that soil really well um, every time that we're planting back in it. And so tomatoes like uh, you need if your tomato leaves start to show purple on the underneath side, that's usually a sign that they are low on phosphorus. And then I always am introducing some nitrogen back in. It's usually composted chicken manure with compost that I put back down in the spring when we're planting again or early summer. And then I usually will do an introduction of some Epsom salt, which is for magnesium. It's not actually salt. Epsom salt is a magnesium source. And then I usually will do some ground up dried eggshells, but you want to grind them up into a really fine powder. If you just kind of crush them or have them large, they're not going to actually break down in time to deliver any calcium to the soil. So I will amend usually yearly with that. Sometimes I'll go every other year with the, the calcium um, because when I'm using a lot of the different composted down manure, it will have some calcium in there. Um, and of course, a soil test would let you know exactly if you needed to do any of those items or not. But honestly, I don't soil test every year. So I do just amend that soil based upon what I know tomatoes and peppers usually need um, and as far as supplements or macro micronutrients um, on them. And then if there's any visible signs, like I said, if I see a lot of purple on the leaves, then I know, okay, my phosphorus level is low. I need to, you know, put some, uh, get some more of that into the soil etc. So I do plant in the same spots because I am not going to move a 10 by 20 structure every single year. <laughs> I'm not going to be rotating that baby around. Yeah, um, that was my husband's question. I said, is yeah. there anything you want me to ask? He said, just ask about that high tunnel. He said, because I do not want to move that again next year if we don't have to. <laughs> yep, I am right there with him. So yep, as long as there hasn't been any disease in that soil, and like I said, it, you know, you're covered and you don't exhibit any signs of disease. Now, if I were, I've been raising my, I'm trying to think how many years we've had our high tunnel now. I've been raising our tomatoes and peppers like that in the high tunnel. I think I'm going on either it's seven or eight years that we've had it. And in that time, I've never had any sign of disease. But if I did develop some sign of disease, then we would move it, you know, and rotate it for the next year. I wouldn't put it back down in there, but we haven't. So, um, which I'm very grateful of because we are a very damp, wet climate here mm -hmm. <laughs> during the summer months. So no, and, and then with the vertical part, because you know, when you're putting the, the hog panels or the cattle panels up there, we buy 16 foot ones and then we bend them over and they're about six feet apart. Um, so, you know, you have this really good structure. I can walk underneath it still, um, you know, because you figure 16 divided by half, you know, eight, even though we've got it stretched out there. And so they're easy to put in and out, but I still don't want to have to be pounding in. We use a six foot metal t-post on one on each side mm -hmm. i still don't want to have to unhook it from that and pull up the t-post and then redo it all the time i am a um i like to say i'm an efficient gardener with my time and labor but some of it i'm like i'm just if i don't have to move it i'm gonna be lazy and i am not giving myself any extra amount of work exactly 
<laughs> so I rotate my crops around that. So for example, like the first year you would be planting your beans and your peas on it, which are both uh, help to fix nitrogen in the soil. They're part of the legume family. And so next year, then I would put on there something like say pickling cucumbers, or you could do any really summer squash that you wanted to, anything that's going to vine and climb up it. So I would put anything within that family. I know a lot of people, even with them, they say they're sturdy enough that they've grown pumpkins on them, like jack-o'-lantern pumpkins. I've only done the cucumbers or like a zucchini. I haven't tested them personally with the weight of like a really large winter squash per se. So I don't know how well they would go, but, and you can also use them. I have, um, we had extra tomatoes last year because as I said, with the, all the stuff that was going on, I'm like, I'm making sure we have an even more than we did last year. And so I put about six tomato plants under three on each side on those and on the inside of it and then tied them up as this, as they grew, um, to the sides of the hog panel, um, and did that on the inside and then actually stretched plastic over it and created kind of like a mini high tunnel. It didn't actually make them any warmer, but it did keep any overhead rain off of them. Even though the sides weren't enclosed, it was just over the top of them. It did help to, to keep any of the rain off of them. And I didn't have any disease on those ones either, but I realized I didn't need those extra tomatoes. So I'm, I'm scaling back the tomatoes to what we normally do from what I put in last year, but you can do several of those and put them in and grow. And then that way you've got them all in at once. And then you can rotate the crops that will grow well on that trellis system every year and just alternate between them, but you're not actually having to move, move that them. structure. Okay. Now, can you do peas and beans on one side and pickling cucumbers on the other side and just switch sides or are they too yeah. close together to do that? Oh no, you absolutely could do it. Yeah. They're six okay. feet apart. So they're totally, okay. that's totally fine. And they, they would be fine. They, yeah, there wouldn't be any issue with doing that. So absolutely. Awesome. And then um, we have a, a small little unheated structure that I just, I, I, I kind of play in with my plants. Um, and that's where I would like to take my next step of moving my tomatoes into to get them out of my dining room. Mm -hmm. What ambient temperature does that need to be at on a consistent basis? So like when I wake up in the morning, it's that temperature before I make that move for them. Yeah, that's a great question. Now, tomatoes are pickier on their temperature. They're definitely even more warm, warm temperature loving than, you know, say like winter squash and some of your, of course, your cooler weather plants, um, broccoli, cauliflower, etc. So with the tomatoes, they really do not like to be in the 50 degree Fahrenheit mark, especially the lower end of 50 degree Fahrenheit. Um, very often or for very long. Now they will survive. They're not going to die if they get, you know, 50 degree, even like 45 degrees Fahrenheit is not going to kill them. But that would only be, you wouldn't want them to be at that temperature for very long because it is going to stunt their growth and they're not happy at that temperature. But say you had an overnight low that was like 45 degrees on a really cold night. It was 45 degrees Fahrenheit in there, you know, but then during the day, they're coming back up into the 60 degree Fahrenheit mark that's going to be okay. Um, but if you're consistently having overnight lows and the temperature in that area is in the 40s, that they aren't going to be very happy. And so you're going to have a lot slower growth rate. And I would wait until those overnight low temperatures out there um, are, aren't quite so low. So really, they like to be in the 60 degree Fahrenheit area. Okay. All the time, if possible. Okay. The, and, you know, even warmer during the day is completely fine. They're very happy in the 70s and even, even the 80s. Um, so really, it's just measuring that overnight low. What I have found, and it's going to depend on how, you know, tight and what your daytime uh, temps are getting to be, et cetera. Um, I found with our high tunnel that it usually will provide me about on the safe side five degrees warmer from whatever the overnight low temperature is. 
um, sometimes 10 degrees, but if like we have a, a frost, say like the it's 29 degrees outside and then I go into the high tunnel provided I've, you know, buttoned everything up really good the night before and not left anything opened, um, then it'll usually be about 34, 35 degrees uh, Fahrenheit. And then as soon as daylight actually hits and you have some sun coming out, it'll quickly, quickly warm up in there. Um, but I would definitely take a outside thermometer, especially if you have the kind where I will put a thermometer out in there, but then you can read what it is inside um, and just and just track over, you know, like a week or so, especially if you have any type of fluctuating weather, like one day it's cloudy, one day it's sunny, you know, or open clear skies, which for us, clear skies usually mean a cooler nighttime temp and, and freezing and just really track what the average temps are in there from the early morning um, the coldest one really is what you're after and see then what the average daytime temps are so that it is warm enough because the one thing you wouldn't want to do is put them out there and have a sneaky frost come in. And then, it, you know, if they get down to 32, 33 degrees Fahrenheit, it, especially if they're younger starts, it will kill them. Yeah, that's what I was concerned about, because we can have I mean, end of April, we can still have some pretty cold and even in the end of the middle of May, we can get some pretty cold weather come in and it's it's just it's a crapshoot so we you know the standing joke around here is don't plant anything in the ground till at least middle of june or you're liable to lose <laughs> it or you're gonna have to go cover everything and hope it hope it's good and it was good yeah one of the things that i did last year because we had i did so many more tomatoes than i normally did and i'm like you i my starts right now are in the corner of our living room um so it's not my dining room but it is my living room um and so i know what you mean it's like oh man like i would love to be able to have these in a different area of the house as they get bigger so what i did to i was able to put them out about probably about two to three weeks earlier than i would have been able to in the high tunnel still and that was and of course they're smaller plants so it's easier to do this in the springtime when you're trying to get them out faster than it is in the fall and keeping them prolonged longer um i double i like double covered them so i purchased one of those really small they're like oh like maybe a foot and a half tall really small super fast to put up little plastic like um frost cover basically but it was with the plastic because that's going to hold the heat in the best and it just kind of, I think it was like a, was it, oh, I think it was a 15 or 20 foot or maybe I had, yeah, it was about close to 20 feet long. So I could do a whole lengthwise row um, inside the high tunnel um, over that. And then if I knew, like, I'm like, oh, it's clear night. I think we're going to get a frost. I would go out in the late afternoon while it was still pretty warm and pop that over top of them inside the high tunnel and then close the high tunnel up for the night. And that would buy me about an extra 10 degrees protection because it was really close to the ground and it was basically double insulating it. And that was really easy to do um, and really fast. I mean, it really only took a couple of minutes because those little row cover, and I can send you a, a link and I can also put them in the show notes. And I do have them linked on the inside the academy for those of you who are listening, who are also academy members in the gardening series under doing the cold frames and that type of protecting your crops from the cool weather. There is a link to those exact ones and you'll see them that I use um, and on the resource page as well. But I'll also put a link in today's blog post for this podcast episode if anybody's curious to see what they look like. I bought them off of Amazon and I have used those. I have several and I have used them, oh my goodness, the same ones for I think like three or four years now. And so you just can reuse them over and over and over again, which is really nice, but they're really super fast to put out and on, which is key for me because if it's going to take a long time, I just will not do it usually. Yep, that's me. <laughs> yeah. I'll so be like, ah, I'll just take my chances tonight. Yep. I need it to be, I need it to be fast and easy and to go out there and do it. And they were, and they did add another five degrees protection. So if they were already inside your high tunnel, it would give you about a 10 degrees buffer um, and that's from that coldest, you know, right in the morning, right before the, the sun really comes up, the, the, which is always the coldest part um, for the plants. So it, that would probably work really well and would be able for you to be able to get them in the ground and out of the dining room sooner. Um, but I don't do you have are tomatoes the only seeds that you have started that you have growing indoors or do you have any other ones, too? No, I've got um, 60 onion seeds that I started about six weeks ago. Okay. And I've got asparagus that's coming up um, that's 
actually getting really big right now. Yay. Um, and then I've got lavender, bergamot, and yarrow. Okay. That um, lavender is just starting to, those seeds are just starting to pop, but the bergamot and the, la- and the yarrow are doing really, really well. Okay. So, especially with the onion seeds, I was looking to hear if you had any cool weather plants. So the onion seeds and the asparagus, those would be able to go out into the high tunnel um, because they can experience cooler temps, even day temps. Now, when they're still, you know, baby tender seedlings, if they're established size, they'll go through a frost just fine. Not when they're tender baby seedlings, they won't. And I still, I forgot to say this, I still harden off when I'm moving any of my plants into a high tunnel from the house you still want to do a hardening off period. So for, you know, two hours the first day, put them in the high tunnel, then bring them back in the house. And then the next day, you know, and just extend that by a couple of hours each day over a week before you put them into the high tunnel um, because it is a different environment and you don't want to shock them. So I still practice hardening off even if I'm moving them from the house into the high tunnel, even though it's not technically like, you know, fully outdoors exposed. I still do a hardening off period. Um, But you could definitely start to move out some of the onions and the um, asparagus crowns and, you know, the lavender and the yarrow, you know, those are all, those are all perennials. And so they'll come back. Obviously the asparagus is too, um, but they are still tender. So you, I would still make sure I wouldn't want them to freeze. So if you have freezing temps, you'll want to cover them out there, but they will continue to grow um, better for you, even if the daytime temps and the high tunnel aren't up into the 60s and 70s, say it's the high, you know, 50s or that type of a thing, they're going to survive um, much better out there earlier than the tomato plants would. So you might just want to flip that and you could take and start at, at least transitioning some of those, some of those out, out there. Okay. Yeah. Do I have to um, cut down the asparagus like I do the onions and keep them at, because they're really long, they're like eight inches tall. You know, I have not grown asparagus from seed, so I don't know on the asparagus actually on that one. I've, I've got asparagus crowns, but of course I've just, you know, I've put them out. Um, and with them, you don't cut them back the first couple of years. You let them grow and you let them fern out. Right. And so then those ferns will feed back to the crown. But I, I don't know if you do the same practice when they're in seedling form like you have. So that one... I would definitely do um, a Google search or look at um, where you bought the seeds from, see if they have any blog posts on the website. Oftentimes seed companies will have some accompanying information on that. Uh, But I don't know on the asparagus from seed. Okay. All righty. And then I did have one more question on um, the, my seedlings that didn't make it. Um, Is it okay to reuse that soil or do I have to dispose of that soil? That's a good question. Do you know why they didn't make it? Do you know what? A couple of them, I think I drowned them. (laughs) Okay. I I probably should have still been spray bottle watering them and I didn't. I watered them and I think it just drowned them out. Okay. So the the reason I'm asking is because if it was dampening off disease, then you wouldn't want to reuse that soil unless you sterilized it. Okay. So you could spread it out on a sheet in the oven and you could sterilize it. Um, You want to get it to, oh gosh, I'm trying to remember off the top of my head. I want to say like 185 degrees. Don't quote me on that. We'll need to look it up to make sure. But you can sterilize it in the oven just in case there was any type of fungal or bacteria, usually fungal related, especially if it was dampening off, if you're just unsure. Um, that would put it on the safe side just to make sure that it wasn't contaminated or it wasn't something like that. Okay. And then you could reuse it without any type of worry. And what is dampening off disease? It's a, it's a fungal disease. And usually what happens is with young seedlings, and it's usually if people have used garden soil or have used uh, soil that obviously had the, the fungal in there. So if you're buying bagged soil, um, like potting mm-hmm. soil, seed starting mix, you know, container, et cetera. Yeah, then usually that ha- they have sterilized it. And that's one of the reasons we usually purchase that type of soil. Um, but there's always the chance that it could be, you know, in the air. But usually what happens is the seedlings start growing. They've all germinated. They look great. And then you come in the next day and they're all just over dead. They've just all wilted and just completely died. 
um, oftentimes it's, it's dampening off disease, which is a, a fungal disease that infects them and, and just kills them. Um, but if you purchase the bag, so it's unlikely that that's what that was, but we can't be a hundred percent sure. So I wouldn't want you to, to use it and then, you know, them all die again because right. you, yeah. So you could just, um, like I said, you can just sterilize it by getting it up to the specific temp for, I think it's like 10 or 20 minutes in the oven. And I know it sounds weird. Like I'm going to put dirt in my oven, right. <laughs> you know, but you would just spread it out shallow on a rimmed baking sheet. And you could even line the baking sheet with aluminum foil if it was weird, but you know, I would just put it on a rimmed baking sheet personally and, and, and put it in there, get it up to temp, obviously let it cool back down. Um, and then you could use it again, especially if the seedlings were really small and tiny when they died, because they wouldn't have really drawn much of the nutrients from the soil yet. Now, if they were larger seedlings, I would say, well, they probably already took mo most of the nutrients from that soil. Um, and so I would just, you know, I would just dispose of it. And if we're not sure if it's disease, I wouldn't put it in my compost pile either, compost pile either just in case there, it was some type of fungal disease that did it. Okay, perfect. Yeah, well, thank you so much for coming on. This was fun. I can't wait to hear all about your garden this year. And I wanted to tell you, congratulations from starting lavender from seed. Lavender is one of the hardest plants to grow from seed. So you're doing really well there. Oh, yay. Thank you. It was, yeah. it was fun. It was real. It, it's such a delicate little seedling when it comes up. It was just kind of scaring me. It was like, oh, okay, I'm going to spray you real lightly. <laughs> yeah, good job. That, that's phenomenal. So I'm really excited. I can't wait to hear about everything um, that you guys do this year. And I hope that you share in the community um, pictures once you get your trellis and your high tunnel up. I can't wait to see those. Oh, I sure will. Absolutely. Yay. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Christine. Thank you, Melissa, for having me. And thank you for all that you do for us. It's just you, you, have, no, you have no idea what, what a godsend you are to so many people. Oh, well, you guys, you know, that's one of the beautiful things is I feel like you guys are gifts to me. So it's wonderful that we all, all feel blessed by one another. So thank you. Absolutely. You have a wonderful day. Thank you for having me on. Thanks. You too. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. I hope you enjoyed that consult as much as I did. And if you're like me, I have been working out in the garden. My seeds have been started and growing in the house, but I've also been able to plant a lot of my cool weather plants. And I cannot garden with gloves on. I don't know what it is. The only thing I use with gloves on is when I'm pruning. But whenever I'm planting, I need my hands to be in the dirt, which means when I'm doing a lot of gardening that my hands get really dried out. and it's gardening hands, right? If you're with me and you garden without gloves, you totally know what I'm talking about. Like we love the feel of the soil, but then you get dirt in all of the, you know, nooks and crannies of your fingernails and in the wrinkles of your skin. And then you're scrubbing them out and you're using soap and water and your hands just get really dry and chapped. And regular lotion never really does anything for me when my hands are in that state. And I don't like to use regular lotion anyways, because lotion when it has the introduction of water, has to use a lot of preservatives in order to keep bacteria from growing. So I started using lotion bars, which is a hard form of lotion, years ago. And it is the only thing that I work and the only thing that works really, really well on my hands. So I have a recipe if you want to make your own lotion bars. We'll link to it in the show notes, the blog post that accompanies today's episode which is at melissacunorris.com forward slash 302. Or you're also able to purchase them from one of my dear friends and favorite affiliate companies, and that is Made On Lotion. So Renee and her family make all of the lotion bars, and they have the date that they were made on them, and they use all natural ingredients. No preservatives are needed because there's no introduction of water, which water externally on our skin just dries it out. So you can go and check out their lotion bars. Their bee silk is one of my favorites. If I'm not making them myself, I have the smaller ones. Anytime I'm traveling or driving, I've got them everywhere. They're in my car. They're in my pockets. I never leave the house without them. And especially if I'm flying, one of the great things is because there's no, it's not liquid, right? So you can take them and they're totally fine for travel. Highly recommend them. You can check those out at melissaknorris.com forward slash 
hard lotion. And for the verse of the week, this is a verse that many of us have heard many times if you grew up in the church or have read the Bible. And it is from Luke chapter 23, verse 34. And this is at the NIV translation. And it's when Jesus is on the cross being crucified right before he dies. And it says, then Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his garments by casting lots. Now, I've heard this verse all the very, you know, every Easter and multiple times. This is a a very common um, thing that even if you're not Christian or not that familiar with the Bible, you've probably heard this. And when I have heard it in the past, I always thought of it in context that he was talking about the soldiers who were dividing up his garments by casting lots, which fulfilled Old Testament prophecy. But I was going through a devotional and the author said, and this has really struck me, which is why I wanted to share it with you. I found it very profound and I had to really sit and think about it. And he was saying, Jesus isn't just saying that to the soldiers that were dividing up his garments by casting lots. He was also saying it, and that also covers you now when you are sinning, because Jesus could see, you know, past, present, and future. God is not bound by time. He sees and knows everything. And when you internalize it or take it personally like that, that he was saying, Father, forgive them for they know what, not what they are doing. Anytime you and I have done something, especially unintentionally, I mean, there's oftentimes where I have done something not realizing the consequence that it would have, or I did something before I was at a point in my relationship where I didn't realize that it was something that would, you know, pain Jesus and would separate me. It was a sin that would separate me from him. And it just had such profoundness when I thought he was on the cross in agony and he was praying for me saying, God, please forgive Melissa. She doesn't know what she is doing. And that made the cross and the crucifixion very personal because sometimes we don't really think of it for us. Like we know that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. What most people do if you're if you're a Christian, you, you know that that's a fundament, fundamental truth of Christianity. But oftentimes we we know it in our heads, but do we know it in our hearts? So anyways, I leave you with that thought because it's one that has been sticking with me uh, since I read that a couple of weeks ago. And it's something that I just keep bringing back up and thinking about. And also in the kind of the beauty of it, um, it's not meant as something to make you feel guilt and shame over, but to know that Jesus was speaking to you and for you and he was praying for you and for me at that time and it is at a very personal level so anyways i hope that that brings you some food for thought something that you sit and you think about um, but also brings you comfort and a greater awareness to go deeper in your relationship with jesus because i feel like that's what it did for me when i thought of it in that context So thank you so much for joining me on today's episode. I can't wait to be back here with you next week. Blessings in mason jars for now. 